Well, the title of this morning's sermon is Your Rod and Staff Comfort Me. And as the passage in Psalm 23 says, your rod and your staff comfort me. I simplified it just a little bit for the sake of space, but your rod and your staff comfort me. Now, we haven't had any grand introductions to our subject matter uh, lately in the sense that we've been working our way passage or clause by clause through Psalm 23. And so anyone who's been coming out at all for the last number of weeks knows that that's what we've been working on. We're looking to finish the last part of verse 4 here this morning. But by way of reminder, in case this is sort of a new study to you and you're trying to jump into the middle of this little mini-series that we're doing on Psalm 23, just know that we've stated repeatedly that verse 1 of Psalm 23 acts as our primary point of the psalm itself. This is a summary statement, I guess, is another way that you could say that. So, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we've observed that that simply could be interpreted because the Lord is my shepherd in light of the fact that he is my shepherd and he is the shepherd of everyone who has put their faith in his provision for your sinfulness. So, in David's day, it was no different than it is now. Man had to recognize he had a need, that he was a sinner that he was a sinner and God was perfectly righteous, God, that he was unrighteous. And that because of his sinfulness, God had to make a way or a provision to deal with his sinfulness, a way that had to be God's provision for man because man could never do anything about his sin, that man was hopeless and was helpless and ultimately would spend an eternity apart from God unless something could be done to atone for his sins. So that man had to put his faith in the Old Testament in dependence on God's future provision of a permanent solution to his sinfulness through a coming Savior. And that by putting his faith in God's solution for, to meet his need, and faith in that alone, that man could be justified or declared to be in a right standing with a holy God. In the meantime, he was taught to symbolize, in a less permanent way, the shedding of blood of an innocent on the behalf of the guilty through animal sacrifices. And so as animals were sacrificed symbolically for an atonement or a blood covering for sinfulness, that man was reminded that apart from there being a substitution of an innocent taking the place of me, the guilty, nothing could ever be done for my sin. So that's why the Bible tells us apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And so Jesus ultimately ultimately came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world as John the Baptist introduced him when he first saw him. And Jesus died on a cross on Calvary as the perfect spotless Lamb without blemish of God who died in the place of sinners as a permanent blood offering or sacrifice for the guilty. And so that's always been the message from the beginning to the end that God was going to have to provide a substitute who could take the place of the guilty because there was none righteous, no, not one. There was none that was seeking after God and all of our works of righteousness were filthy rags. And on account of our sin having separated us from God because by one man, Adam, sin had entered into the world and death came with sin or that separation, the separating effect of sin as God being perfectly holy couldn't be now in close proximity any longer with sinners because sinners were associated with sin. My watch is trying to help me with this message this morning. Here's what I found. I don't know what she found. (laughs) In any event, because God was trying to man was now identified with this choice to choose 
what was opposed to God by choosing what Satan said was true instead of God's truth, man put himself or alienated himself from God because he now became a sinner or became identified with sin. God, again, being perfectly holy, he couldn't be tainted by sin, so he couldn't be in that relationship, that close, intimate relationship with man anymore. And so God had to come up with a rescue plan. And in his wisdom, he determined that the plan to rescue mankind would involve the sacrifice of his son. And that the only thing, the only person or the only entity, I guess, being a unique God-man as Jesus Christ became man. He came to earth to be both fully God but fully man. And in his incarnated state, being fully God, though, the value of his death was the only thing that could be greater than the value or the debt that was owed for all man's sin. And so God in his love sacrificed the thing that was most valuable to him, his only son, for God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. He gave him in what sense? He gave him in the sense that Jesus Christ became that death or that sin offering for you and I. As he paid the debt that you and I should have had to pay as he died in our places, his death was substituted in the place of our death. So instead of us having to die, now Jesus would die in our place so that through putting our faith in his finished work on our behalf, we could be made to be right with God again. We could be restored to a place of reconciliation. We could be reconciled with God. Not on the basis of what we had done, but on the basis of how Jesus had done for us what we could never do for ourselves as he died in our place, was buried and rose again. And so as Jesus did that for us, the question wasn't, has there been a solution now offered permanently to deal with man's sinfulness? The solution is there. God sent his only begotten son. The solution has already been provided and it's already been implemented through the perfection that was Christ's death in your behalf. So that's not the issue. The issue is, will you accept and put your faith and confidence in the gift that God is offering you through the death of the son? So Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that for by God's grace you've been saved through faith. That it is not of yourself, it's a gift from God. It's not of works lest anyone should boast. And so God in his love, he sent a love offering of the sacrifice of his son in your place. Jesus became sin for you who knew no sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. What that means is that God's righteousness could be credited to your account so you could be put in a right standing with God so that you wouldn't be estranged from God anymore. Now that's on the basis though of Christ's sacrifice and payment on your behalf. Now how do I apply that to my account? I apply that to my account by believing. It says, whoever believes in him will not perish but will instead have everlasting life. And friends, how long does everlasting last? Forever, right? And so there's nothing then that can separate you from God's love because if you accept what Christ has done for you, you're sealed in his family. The Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of you as a down payment on the future guarantee that you will one day be glorified and go to spend eternity with him. And all of that is on the basis of God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. So back to Psalm 23, our first verse, because the Lord is my shepherd. That's how he becomes your shepherd. You chose to put yourself in his sheepfold. How did you do that? By believing in the work of his son as Jesus had died in your place. That's the same way that David got into the Lord's sheepfold too though. That's how he became a sheep of the good shepherd. As he put his faith in God's provision for his sinfulness and he put all of his confidence in that. Not just some of that. Even David had to come to realization that there was absolutely nothing he could do 
to help God out as it related to dealing with his sinfulness and the consequence or the penalty of his sin. David had to understand that too. And so that's how he became a part of the good shepherd's sheepfold. He became a sheep of the shepherd. And so he can now confidently have this summary statement for the whole entirety of Psalm 23 when he says, because the Lord is my shepherd. He doesn't say he might be my shepherd when I'm minding my P's and Q's. He's my shepherd when I'm doing the right things. He's my shepherd if I do my part. The Lord will be my shepherd if I take this thing across the finish line. He says the Lord is my shepherd with confidence. He can only say that because he sees that becoming a sheep of the good shepherd has nothing to do with him. It has to do with him accepting God's provision for him. That's where that confidence can come from. That's why one who says, if you're talking to them today and you say, did you know that you could know for sure that you're going to heaven when you die? And they say, what arrogance. How could you know that for sure? Boy, you must think you're a pretty good guy. You're pretty hot stuff. And you say, no, it's because the opposite of that is true. I realize I'm the not stuff. And as I see that I'm the not stuff, I put all my confidence in what Jesus has done for me. And because he's so wonderful, and he's so faithful, and he's so great, and he's so perfect, and he's so all-sufficient, I can have absolute confidence that his provision to meet my need is without any blemish at all. So I can be certain that he will bring to a conclusion what he promised me, that I would never perish, and neither would anyone pluck me out of his hand. Or my father, or his father's hand. That's where the confidence can come from. So David has that assurance. So because the Lord is my shepherd, now he's going to make a practical application. So there's the positional application here, which is that the Lord is his shepherd. But now he makes that practical application that is the summary of all that we're looking at. Because the Lord is my shepherd, and I say that with confidence, I lack nothing. I shall not want. I lack nothing. He didn't become my shepherd being the perfect solution to my sin and then forget about how to care for me in this life. That's the idea there. I lack nothing because this good shepherd is the one who's providing. He's the one who's in charge. And so because I'm his sheep, I lack nothing. And then he starts getting into specifics. And we've been looking at some of those specifics. Let's review a few of the ones that we've seen so far. So because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And here's some examples. He... There's the emphasis. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. We said that has the effect of saying, he makes it possible for me to rest. He leads me beside the still waters. He provides for my spiritual needs, my physical needs. But we, we brought out this idea that he leads me beside the still water. He doesn't make me drink though. Just like the horse that I was riding and I told you about that you lead him to the stream, didn't want to drink. The rest of the horses wanted to drink. You lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. God puts that refreshment of his word in front of us and gives us access to it all of the time. He gives us access to living life with him all of the time. But he doesn't make us drink in those refreshing waters. But he leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And we talked about how necessary that is as we go through life to, periodic, to need periodic cleansing or restoration in our life. He restores my soul in the sense of first tense justification as he freed me from the penalty of sin. But this application we brought out is referring to more of the practical second tense sanctification, this process of God wanting to transform us or conform us into the image of his son 
as a process over time. So that sanctification process that's taking place over time, practical sanctification. So he restores my soul. Now, what else? He leads me in the paths of righteousness. And we brought out that that's the right paths. And there are a few different ways that we looked at that. Right as in righteous, right as in safe, right as in direct. To lead me to the desired objective without a bunch of waywardness, unnecessary wandering. His desire is to lead me in a straight path, the right path, one that avoids some of those pitfalls that I bring on myself when I refuse to trust him. And what's all this for? For his name's sake. Because that's the kind of God he is we brought out. And I've mentioned even a song that The God You Are, which is on more modern Christian radio nowadays. That's the kind of God you are. You're turning ashes into art is one of the lines in that, lo- in that song that I love so much. We're all a restoration project as God is seeking to get rid of us and replace us with his son. It's not the kind of thing where he can just paint over what's there. He needs to rebuild and transform the whole thing. It's a ground up type of a thing where he has to be the foundation and he has to build from there to eliminate us and replace us with divine viewpoint or divine thinking or the image of his son as his spirit would direct and lead in our lives. So then we moved on to, yea, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, talking about the sense that there would be a narrow, not a wide, but a a narrow and dark passage, a crevice of types as the trails would snake through these hilly canyons and these would would create darkness because the sun wouldn't shine into those spaces. They'd be lifeless kind of spaces. And even as I walk through those spaces, I will, not I might not, I will fear no evil. And the reason was, for you are with me. It's your presence with me that eliminates fear. Now, fear of evil in this context he talks about, but that's a pretty broad statement. Fear of anything. I don't have to have fear at all when you're with me, even when I walk through the dark places and spaces of life. Now we brought out that the primary focus there was on spaces that he was leading. Because in the immediate context, I'm, he's leading me in the right paths for his name's sake. So as I'm walking on those paths, they at times, even through his direction, lead through dark, narrow valleys. Places where there is hardship and trial and difficulty. And when we talked about how, we can bring ourselves to those places too. But in this context, he's the one that's leading. But I fear no evil even whether I brought myself there or whether he brought me there. I don't have to fear evil because he's with me. The moment, no matter how I find myself in a dark or scary place like that, where there's evil or there's danger around me, I don't have to fear any evil, but it's conditioned on a recognition that you are with me. Now we come to our part for today. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And then let's finish out the rest of the psalm here. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's unpack this second part of this fourth verse here. And Lord willing, finish verse 4 
move on to our last two verses in the coming weeks. Now, when you're thinking about verse 4 here, we have an overview of sorts. This clause is primarily focusing on the safety that the shepherd alone can provide the sheep. So your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's this idea, it's all connected to, I feel, fear no evil, for you are with me. It has a sense of your presence, casts out fear, because I know that you're there, and I know that you're perfectly capable of undertaking in my life to bring me through whatever it is I'm facing, no matter how scary it might be. And so in, the, in that context, the continuation of it is, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. As you're with me, walking alongside me, you're with me. And we're going to talk about what these, this illustration is referring to with your rod and, the, and your staff, but the, the ultimate focus is on the comfort that can be provided. There's a sense of safety that's a byproduct of the protection and the direction that the shepherd provides. So the rod and the staff, they're going to see, we'll see they focus or they symbolize the protection and the direction that the shepherd provides for the sheep. So we'll start with a little bit of a breakdown here on your. We're not going to do a lot of this because there's been this focus on the shepherd as we've gone through this with the Lord, then he, 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 his name, sake, for you are with me, now your rod and your staff. And so there's a little bit of a, there's this personal aspect to it that's been coming out, but it's a reference back to the Lord, of course. Your rod and your staff, we're talking about the shepherd's provision for the sheep. The good shepherd here. The psalm has this very personal, conversational flavor to it as David is talking in the first person, he's talking to the divine shepherd or to the Lord. And as he's talking to him, he's having this conversational feel here as though it's written poetically, he's, he's saying it as if he's talking directly to God. So, well, he's talking about God. I wouldn't say directly to God. But he switches to talking directly to God. So when he's saying about he makes me, he'd be talking about God. When he switches here to you and your, now he's talking directly to God. And that's an interesting transition that occurs right here. So you, you see he makes me lie down, he leads, he restores, he leads. Now when he gets to the dark and the dangerous sort of the scary parts of life, when I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, he switches now to I will fear no evil for you are with me. Now he has this very direct appeal or conversational type of approach with God. You are with me. Then he says, and he continues that focus or that way of speaking, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And he keeps on with that, with you prepare a table before me, you anoint my head with oil, with this direct conversation with the Lord. Instead of talking about what he has done or what he does in his life, he's now talking to him directly, though we have this still the same flavor of him revealing these specifics about the Lord's provision in his life. But God is not distant and far away. The thing that I hope you're taking away from this psalm, as much as the overall point, which is that God ultimately provides everything that you need. I hope you're taking away this idea that God is very present and near. He is not distant and far away. You can see that in this relational feel, this close intimacy that David is revealing as he writes the psalm in this way. I hope this is how you start to see God. 
as a very near and present God. And here's a few verses also from Psalms that just show this flavor that David has a full understanding of this concept that God is not distant and far away. God is with you. You are with me. He's on the, on the heels of that thought, I hope we're getting that thought. You are with me. You're a present God. Well, Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength. Now, this is the part I'm getting to here, getting at. A very present help in trouble. He's not a distant help. He's a present help. It's a present God who's actively involved in our lives, who says he won't ever leave us, who's with us through the trials and the hard things that we're going through. Psalm 145.18 carries on that thought, the Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Now, does that mean that God isn't near unless you call upon him? No. I will never leave you or forsake you. We're talking about practically. The Lord is practically near or presently near in, a terms, in terms of you appropriating by faith his presence. His presence is a fixed reality, but the Lord is now practically. In reality, he's near in, in my personal reality when I'm calling upon him. If I don't ever appropriate his closeness or live in light of his closeness, the fact that he's near but I never take advantage of it or I I never include that in my thinking, I don't walk, my manner of living doesn't have a recognition of his closeness. I'm I'm not living life with him. I'm not speaking to him. I'm not telling him the things I'm going through. I'm not asking him for guidance as I make decisions in my life. I'm not appropriating the promises that are made over and over and over in his word. I'm not interested in his communication to me as revealed through his written word. When I'm not doing any of that, is God practically real or present in my life? And the answer is no. But when I turn to him, when I call on him, he's very near in those moments. And that's the idea there. We have this again, this focus of your you're, you're my God, and your presence is what gives me comfort, and your rod and your staff are what give me comfort in the face of some of these difficulties in life. Now let's move on to rod and staff. So the rod here is defined as a club-like tool of shepherding used primarily for defense, including driving wild animals away. Sheep are vulnerable. R- remind yourself of that. Sheep are vulnerable If you've put your faith in the good shepherd, you're a sheep. You're a sheep of the good shepherd. Without him, I lose my way. But without him, I'm helpless. Without him, I'm flailing around. Without him, I'm like some of these sheep that I showed you pictures of where I get bigger and bigger and bigger and less and less mobile and more and more vulnerable. Shrek was one of them. That poor guy. He got away from the shepherd for two, two years, wasn't it? Did he thrive in that time away from the shepherd? No, he was in a near-death-like experience apart from the shepherd. It was miraculous in some ways that somebody came along to rescue him, 
to get all that extra weight that he had accumulated. You know, what happens when you wander through life apart from the shepherd? You're just kind of wandering through life, looking at the ground, looking at yourself, looking at your circumstances, you're just kind of wandering through life. But you're not doing it under the direction of the good shepherd. You're wandering through life. What tends to happen there? You pick up some things. What do you pick up? Barnacles, some weight, right? You pick up some weight. And that's what happens with the sheep because they're not periodically shaved so that they take that weight off of them. They just start accumulating extra weight in their lives. And you pick up the weight of the world. That's why we have to lay aside the sin and the weight that so easily ensnares us. Now, do we lay aside the sin and the weight? No, we look unto Jesus and that has a cleansing effect on us. As we acknowledge him again in our life, acknowledge that we haven't been doing what he wants for our lives or living life the way he intended, and that has a cleansing effect on us as we shed that weight. But that's what happens with the sheep that wanders from the shepherd. He starts getting heavier and heavier and heavier. So what a nice way, I guess, of looking at that. But as you get heavier and heavier and heavier, you don't get more and more mobile You're not quick on your feet. You're not quick with your mind to come back to the sharpness that comes from the Word of God. It's the Word of God that gives you mental sharpness, gives you the ability to think clearly. And as you wander from the Word of the Shepherd, you naturally wander from His Word. As you wander from His Word, you become dull of thinking, dull of hearing. And as your mind becomes dull, you become susceptible to predators. And as you're looking at driving away wild animals, dull susceptible, overweight sheep, they attract predators. And that's the idea. The shepherd now has to have a rod to defend the sheep. And David was very familiar with this weapon of protection. This is something that he utilized in his shepherding of the sheep that he had, of his father's. One shepherd that I was reading about, he in talking about this club-like instrument or tool, He says this, each shepherd boy, from the time he first starts to tend his father's flock, takes special pride in the selection of a rod exactly suited to his own size and strength. He then takes and cuts down a sapling. The enlarged base of the sapling, where its trunk joins the roots, is is shaped into a smooth, rounded head of hard wood. After he completes it, the shepherd boy spends hours practicing with his club, learning how to throw it with amazing speed and accuracy. It becomes his main weapon of defense for both himself and his sheep. Turn, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I have it on the screen, but just for some page turning this morning. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel. But read along. Here's a little bit of a lengthy passage, but it talks about Paul, sorry, David talking to King Saul. Remember that David has come to bring some things to his brothers at the camp where the Israelites are gathered with the Philistines against them and Goliath is coming out day by day and mocking the Israelites and he's saying, send a man out who will fight me. And David says, why hasn't somebody gone out to kill this pagan 
who defies the armies of the living God? Why hasn't somebody already taken care of this? And they're all fearful. He says, send me, I'll do it. And they say, so there's a sense of incredulous is what Saul is. You're not somebody who could defeat this enemy. And this is what David says as part of his defense as to why I'm an appropriate person for this. He says, and Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. But this is what David says to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, so are there predators looking to get vulnerable sheep? Yeah, there are. But when a lion and bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, what did he strike and kill these animals with? Well, it doesn't say a rod, but that's what David would have been familiar with. He would have had a rod in one hand and a staff in the other hand. He is the general way that shepherding would have been done in those parts. And so that David is very familiar with this defensive tool that the shepherd uses to defend the sheep against predators. So the question becomes this, how does God protect his children if this is about God's protection and the, the sense of safety that we can have knowing that he is with us. He is with us and he's able and ready to protect us. Well, God can and does provide physical deliverance and protection for his children. In David's own life, here's some of the times that you see in Psalms that he talks about God's deliverance. This is God utilizing this symbolic or this illustrative rod in the lives of his sheep or his children. But in Psalm 18.3, David says this, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. Were there times where God intervened in David's life to save him from physical, actual enemies? And the answer is yes. Saul being one of them more than one, on more than one occasion. And that's why David can write these things. For he has delivered me out of all trouble. He's not saying this might happen or I hope that this happens. This is David now in Psalm 54, 7 reflecting back on God's past deliverance. Now is that spiritual deliverance? We're going to get to that in a moment. No, he's focused on his actual physical enemies and how God is able to answer prayers. Now does God always undertake to provide physical protection and deliverance the way we hope he will in every circumstance? The answer is no. But can he and does he intervene to provide physical protection and deliverance at times? The answer is yes. Can we figure out God's ways or God, why God does what he does? No. Can we know that he is always going to do what's best for us? He's always going to seek to use anything that happens in our life for his glory and our good. Do we, can we rest in that? That God is good all of the time and that God's goodness is directed at us all of the time, even when he doesn't intervene in certain trials and difficulties. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean he never does. There's plenty of instances in your own life where you can see or you could give God glory or credit for having intervened to provide physical protection and deliverance in your life. Here's another one, Psalm 138.7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, does that sound a lot like when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death? 
Though I walk in the midst of trouble, does that sound like a dark, a dark place? A dark crevice? A dark ravine? The sun might not be shining? Might feel lifeless? A near-death kind of experience or feeling? What does it say? Though, when, not I might do this, when I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me. Now there's a spiritual application there. Definitely, you will revive me has a spiritual part to it in addition to the physical part of it. But in the context, I believe David is talking about physical protection and deliverance that he experienced in his life. Now think about other times in the Bible where God undertook to provide this illustration of God's protection, using the rod for the protection against your enemies in a physical sense. There's other times you can think of where God provided physical deliverance from danger or harm, this illustration again of the rod. We could go on for quite a while, but just some of them, Noah, did Noah face a wickedness of man? Was he living in a time where things were dark? It says, every thought of the intents of man's heart then was only evil continuously. That's what he says, that's how God describes the state of affairs in Noah's day. But did God just abandon Noah in that? No, God made a way of deliverance for Noah. He made a way of deliverance for all mankind if they would have put their faith in the preaching of righteousness that Noah was said to have done for over a hundred years. So as he proclaimed God's deliverance and God's goodness and God's righteousness, man didn't respond. But God still made a way for Noah to be delivered. Now is, it, is God's deliverance conditioned on us deserving it? See, Noah is described as a preacher of righteousness in the New Testament. There was one, but there was one man, Noah, who was faithful to God, it says. So you could make an argument there. You could say, well, that's, he deserved rescue or a way of escape because he was righteous. But how about, how about the story of Lot? Was, was Lot positionally righteous? Yeah. He was. He was a child of God. We know that from the New Testament. It vexed his righteous soul. Right, Sean? It vexed his righteous soul. But did, was Lot living in a way that was compatible with anything that you would say was godly or righteous? Uh, we, we need not even go into all the details. Some of the most perverse things you could think of were true in Lot's life and in the society that he lived in. But on account of Abraham saying to God, will you not spare the righteous when you destroy these cities? God says, no, I'll spare the righteous. No, it says, and Abraham said, well, how about, if, how about 50 righteous you'd spare the cities, right? Sure. What did he get down to? You guys remember? 10, right? Were there 10? No. So did God destroy Lot with the unrighteousness of Sodom and Gomorrah? No. God made a way. He sent angels. They had to take him by the wrist. They took him by the wrist and led him to safety. And then he rewarded God for that rescue by living a godly life from there on out. 
It's not about whether we deserve it or not, friends. This is a story of grace. The Bible is a story of God doing for people what they don't deserve. And he's just begging people, just get your eyes on me. No, I know you messed up. I, I know you didn't do this the way you should have done this. Get your eyes back on me. I can give you victory. I can lead you in the right paths. You got to get your eyes off yourself and your circumstances and all the others that you're blaming in your life. Get your focus on me. I want to undertake in your life to make your life count. I want you to live a life that is where your cup is overflowing with my goodness on a practical basis. Now, positionally it is. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Your cup is overflowing in terms of God's blessing. But are you going to live life in a way where you can appropriate by, great, by faith the grace that God wants to bestow on you in your practical day-to-day Christian life? That's the, that's the question. And so you could talk about Noah. You could talk about Daniel. Did God provide physical protection for him when he was thrown in with the lions? How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? There's another in the fire, right? There's more than just the three of them in the fire. And they come out without one hair singed. The fire's so hot that those stoking the fire are killed instantly. That they walk out without one hair singed on them. Is there physical deliverance and protection that God provides to his children? The answer is yes, there is. But I would say this, God is, God's greater concern is for your spiritual protection. So there are elements to God providing for our physical protection. But in terms of deliverance and protection, it's our spiritual well-being that God is most interested in. And Jesus expresses this concern, this obvious concern that he has for the danger spiritually that his children face, that his followers face. You can see that here in John 17, verse 15. This is one of my favorite verses in the, in the whole New Testament. But John 17, 15 says, I do not pray that you should take them out of this world or out of the world. So this is Jesus praying about his disciples knowing that he's going to be leaving them behind. For a moment, for a little while, and then he's going to come back again. But he says this, he's praying to the Father, Jesus is praying, but I pray that you should keep them from the evil one. You know, Jesus could have prayed that when he left, all believers left with him and that was the end of it. He could have shut the whole thing down right, down right then. He says, I'm going to leave you behind though, but I'm going to leave you behind with a mission that you'd be light bearers for me, that you'd shine the light of me into the dark places and spaces that I direct you so that all could come to a place of repentance or changing their mind about who I am and what I've done for them. I'm not willing that any would perish and I want you to shine your lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's what I want your mission to be, to be ambassadors for me, light bearers for me. Do you see that that's your purpose? There's so many other things that we allow to become our purpose and our identity. Those are all secondary. The purpose is that we should shine as lights. And, and, and Jesus has this mentality where he's saying, Father, Heavenly Father, protect them in this world. They're in this world, but they're not of this world. Their identity, their citizenship is in heaven. Their citizenship isn't in this world anymore. 
Their citizenship is in heaven. And as they seek eternal things, and they seek them first, when they're yielded to my spirit working in them, they'll never do that on their own. But when they're connected to me and abiding in me, and my spirit is working in them, and they seek those eternal things first, then they're going to have an impact into the darkness that I put them in as they're in the world but not of the world. But I want you to keep them from the evil one. You mean their spiritual danger that the child of God is facing in this life? Yes, the adversaries are powerful. A spiritual battle is raging. It's a battle for the souls of men. It's a battle for the thinking, for your minds. It's raging all around you as Satan is constantly bombarding you with something that is not God's truth. The opposite of what is true. To distract you from the mission. To distract you from what is, what is true. To distract you from God's promises for you. And his plan for you. And his purpose for you. And his will for you. And his word written to you. Seeking to do that with a lot of different things. Not all of them overtly evil. But all of them harmful to you. Because they take your eyes off of him. So we're reminded of this in Ephesians. Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The battle is raging. The enemy is the world, the flesh, and the devil. You notice that the devil and the world are external, but the flesh is internal. It's me against me at times. But it's a spiritual battle for my thinking. And the rod speaks of this idea that God wants to protect and deliver us from those dangers, those spiritual dangers. And we see that here. How are we going to be protected? Well, the primary defense is God's truth or word. That's the primary defense to the attack that you are facing. The the defensive armor starts first and foremost with God's word. That's given to you for protection. That's the equivalent of God using his rod on your behalf to guard you against the enemies that you're facing. Is he gave you his word. He says, sanctify them. This is two verses later. I, I, would, I don't want you to take them out of the world, but I want you to keep them from the evil one. How do you do that? How are you going to do that? Sanctify them, so keep them holy. Keep them right. By your truth. Your word is truth. It's the truth of God's word that has that sanctifying effect on us in the face of the adversary that we're facing. That's the solution that's given two verses later to this prayer that God would, that the Father would keep us from the evil one. How is that going to be done? Through God's truth. That's when you look at Ephesians 6, 10, and, and I skipped a few verses, but here's the general part of it, starting in 6, 10, going through verse 17, you're thinking about the defensive armor that God provides to those for spiritual protection. His use of the rod is done in a way where he equips us with his word to fight the spiritual battle that we're facing. So Paul says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Who is the source of our strength? Who is ultimately wielding the club? Well, not me. Be strong in the Lord. The power of his might. I don't have strength in and of myself other than that the God of the universe lives inside of me. And as the Spirit of God, which raised Jesus from the dead, lives inside of me, He empowers me to fight the good fight. But not because of me, 
through me, as he equips and enables and empowers me to stand against the attack of the evil one. So put on the whole armor of God. What does that mean? The whole armor. That, does that mean it's possible to put on less than the whole armor? Yeah, it, it's possible to put on less than the whole armor. To think that you are availing yourself of God's protection when you're not surrounding yourself with his word and his truth and thinking and meditating on those things. You're not looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. That's partially being armed. Now, for what purpose in mind? That you may stand against the wiles of the devil. Does it say that you might fight back the devil? No, stand against the devil. Stand therefore having girded your waist with what? Truth, where do we find that? God's word. Putting, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, where do we find what's right? God's word. Having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, where's that found? God's word. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. He's attacking us. This is defensive. We can stand against it through his power working on us. But then take the helmet of salvation and the sword. There's, a, argue, there's arguably an offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God. As you toss this thing onto the floorboards of your car, and as it gathers dust sitting on the mantle somewhere, as your children are scurrying around on Sunday morning trying to find where their Bibles are, I'm not, this isn't about guilt. As we go through life making time for everything but this, and God says this is the sword, we have our kids in Sunday school do sword drills. We, this is a sword. It's a sword drill. How do they do that? They hold their Bibles. Well, I don't know if different teachers do it differently, but usually, the way I was, would do it as a kid, I'm going to close this. They would say, hold your Bible by the spine like this. Then they'd give you a reference. And then they would say, Go. What's funny about that is the flesh can work itself into something that was supposed to be <laughs> good. Your comp- my competitive spirit would come out that. Tommy, Tom Radke and I <laughs> would sit next to each other. We would, we would select Bibles that were most appropriate for winning sword drills. <laughs> there were certain ones that there was a lot of chapters on every page. So there wouldn't be as many. And then some of them were really worn in, had a good feel to them. Just like... You know, like you'd have a good mitt for baseball. <laughs> Can God use even bad motives to help you later in life? Yeah, I generally speaking can find where I'm looking for things in the Bible thanks to that. In any event, we need to move on. So there's spiritual protection. It's, it's centered in God's word in terms of the spiritual protection. God is the one who's undertaking to do that. That's what we're talking about with the rod. Physical and spiritual protection. Now staff. The staff, this is the second instrument the shepherd uses to provide safety for his sheep. The staff was a long stick used to walk with, guide, and control the sheep. Some were simply straight sticks, and others were sticks with the traditional crook at the end of them. So there wasn't one hard and fast idea here. But the shepherd needs to protect the sheep from external attack, and what does he use for that? The rod. But the shepherd also must protect them from themselves. The shepherd must protect the sheep from themselves, and that's the greater focus here. The shepherd's staff illustrates this reality. The shepherd's staff was used to redirect sheep, 
to discipline sheep, and to rescue sheep. So some sheep need to be directed with a simple prod in the right direction. There's none of them sitting here. But some sheep can be directed with a simple prod in the right direction. Do not raise your hand. It's not true. But some sheep need to be redirected when they stray with a whack to the rump. Yeah, I said it, rump. A whack to the rump. And the shepherd would use the staff to do that. A swat across the backside of that sheep that's trying to do its own thing. Anyone experienced that before? Also, some sheep need to be lifted out of danger using the crook end of the staff. So that's where we have the staff is used to redirect, to discipline, and to rescue. Man, what a wonderful picture we're getting here of the Good Shepherd wanting to redirect, discipline, and rescue sheep. Now remember, the shepherd is always focused on providing for and protecting the sheep. The Lord's protection and direction are both intended to keep you safe. He protects you to keep you safe. He directs you to keep you safe. It's about your safety. He doesn't want you wandering off into the desert. He doesn't want you wandering off of cliffs. He wants to direct you in a place that would be in your best interest. And so when you're thinking about the motivation and purpose behind discipline being one of the aspects here of the staff, it's always intended to keep you safe. It's for your protection that God disciplines you. And we see that Proverbs three eleven through 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves... There's his motivation. He corrects just as the father in whom he delights. Hebrews says, if you endure, chapter 12, verse 6, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. You discipline your, your own sons. You don't discipline others. You discipline your own sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? No loving father would ever fail to redirect and discipline his child. But if you are without chastening, of which all become partakers, all, real, all sons become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. That's the conclusion. If God's not trying to grow you, mature you, conform you into the image of his son, then you're not a son. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Some of us did some of the time. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? It's for our life. It's so our life could be expanded by being corrected in a way that would benefit us over time. For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, meaning not all parental discipline is always with our best interests in mind. Some discipline can occur out of frustration, selfishness on a parent's part even. But not God. All chastening by God is for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Can we share in the divine nature? Yeah, as the divine spirit of God is working in us, yeah. Then reflected through us, in and through us, can be a manner of living that is consistent with God's holiness. Not because we are in and of ourselves doing anything to make ourselves holy, but he's holy and he lives inside of us. But it seems now... No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, 
It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is direction and redirection. With God's staff, they provide safety and security. It's to help you. It's to keep you safe. A parent disciplines his child when he does something dangerous so that he won't endanger himself further. That's the point of redirecting a child sometimes through discipline. Now, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And comfort is focused on assurance, security, and safety. Other translations have, give me courage. Your rod and your staff, they give me courage. They reassure me. They fill me with confidence. Notice as we think about this flow of thought, what are we really talking about? We have confidence because the Lord is with me. But if I walk through this flow of thought from the last three phrases that we've looked at, it would go something like this. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. So the Lord leads me on the right paths which often traverse dark ravines filled with danger, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So the Lord leads me on right paths, which often traverse dark ravines filled with danger. Yet, I can journey without fear. I will not fear, because he is always with me, keeping me safe and secure. His rod and staff provide protection and direction, which makes me feel safe and secure. He keeps me safe and secure. I feel safe and secure. That's the comfort part of this. I'm feeling, I'm, I'm internalizing what I'm observing as he's keeping me safe and, cons- and secure. That has the byproduct of giving me that safety or that sense of safety, security, and assurance. That fills me with confidence. And so there's sort of a paraphrase of how we have worked through those last Sections. It reminds me of that song, Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful rest. Trusting completely in Jesus, I am blessed. Sweetly he comforts and shields from alarms, holding me safe in his mighty arms. That's the comfort you can feel. Because he's the one protecting. He's the one directing. You would never feel that on your own. You would never experience that on your own. So he comforts your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Yet another reminder when we're looking at this me, of this intimate relationship the believer is to have with the Lord. And David has this great understanding of it. Remember, this is referred to as the he and me psalm. This is the 18th personal pronouns that have been used in four and a half verses. You have half of verse one, I think. No, it's just four verses, so that's just wrong. 18 personal pronouns. That's the mentality. This is personal. So do you see God in this personal and intimate way? Well, whether you do or don't, you can. He's a personal God who's very near and present. Turn your eyes to him. Call out to him. And he'll be right there. Do you find assurance, security, and safety knowing that God wields his rod and staff with your best interest in mind? That when he protects you from attack by outsiders and he directs you and corrects you with his staff from yourself, he protects you from others with the rod, he directs you and protects you from yourself with his staff, does that give you comfort? You can can and should have comfort. Are you sensitive to his gentle nudges? You can become that way if you could keep your eyes on him. Are you responding to his wax to your rump? 
Or are you just doubling down? For those of you online, I made a kind of gesture of stubbornness. You know what? It's best to respond to the gentle nudges. There's less wasted time that way. And there's a lot fewer tears. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that we could spend here together. Thank you that you love us so much and you demonstrated that not just through providing a way for us to be rescued from the penalty for our sin, but that you provided a way for us to be rescued from or delivered from the power of sin trying to control our lives and our thinking. Pray that we would yield ourselves to you. We would keep our minds on you. We would walk in dependence on you. And we'd be looking to you so that you can make that deliverance a practical reality in our lives, that we could then live lives that are directed and enabled and equipped and empowered by you, that they would be right lives. Not because we would make them right on our own way or even choose the right paths on our own, but that we would trust you and follow you as you see fit so that our lives could count for something in light of eternity. Pray that we wouldn't waste any more time. Pray that if we have been distracted and if we've been uh, misled or been wayward, that we would just, even this morning, be encouraged to just shift our gaze, shift our focus back to you, and let you take over from here forward. In Jesus' name, amen.